And this morning, as we continue, um, Heather is going to share with us. Would you come up? Most of you know Heather. Um, she, has, she and her husband, Chris, have been with the church since we started. And Heather is a graduate of Dallas Seminary. She is a writer, a mom, a wife. Um, bread maker. And a bread maker. Um, those of you that one time saw the bread that she brought up, which was her, wait. I've gotten much better. Okay. <laughs> it tasted great. I would like to pray for her. Heavenly Father, thank you for Heather. Thank you for the gifts that you have given to her. As she shares your word with us this morning, would you give us open minds and hearts to receive, that your spirit may speak to us and change us to be more like Christ. And it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Chris and I had been married about four months, maybe five, when I went to a conference and ran into a former coworker, whom I hadn't seen in about a year, year and a half. And she, you know, how is married life? And oh, I gushed. Oh, it's so wonderful. I'm just married to the most amazing man. And I went on and on. And she said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait till six months. And I, no, no, not us. And then I woke up, and it was six months. And we fought for about the next six months straight. Now, to be fair, Chris tried really hard to not fight until I got mad at him because he wasn't yelling enough. (laughs) But see, I discovered something. I still think that Chris is the most amazing man. And if we had time, I would go through the list of why he is the most amazing man in the world and why he's just perfect husband for me, perfect father for our children, et cetera, et cetera. But I discovered at six months that he's also a sinner. (laughs) And I discovered something even more disturbing. There was the possibility that I as well might be a sinner. I'll give you a moment to let that settle in. It was shocking for me. And besides that, we had all sorts of different opinions on things that had nothing to do with right or wrong, although I was pretty convinced everything I had to think was right and he was wrong. But we learned that marriage is hard. It's wonderful. It's amazing. I love being married. But it's also hard, and it's a lot of hard work, and it takes a lot of commitment. The church is not that much different. Being part of this community is wonderful. It's amazing. And I feel like I'm still in that honeymoon haze here with redemption. I just think everything about redemption is wonderful and amazing, and I love you guys so much, and I gush all the time when people say, how are things at redemption? (gasps) Oh, my goodness, it's just so wonderful. And people say, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because Redemption is an amazing church. You guys are amazing, and this is such a wonderful body of believers. But I have a feeling that the honeymoon stage at some point is going to end. And at some point, we might get annoyed with each other. At some point, we might have some disagreements. And some of them might just be, you know, silly things like, I really don't want to go through that entrance. I like this entrance over here. (laughs) Thank you. That was like the perfect setup. (laughs) We planned that. (laughs) 
And some of them might be more deep-seated things, some more theological issues that we'll have to work through and figure out. But there will be hard times. There will be disagreements. We come from a lot of different backgrounds, and the more we grow, the more backgrounds we come in, and the more opinions come in. And it's just inevitable that this will happen. And here is what I love about God, one of the many things. He chose to give us stories of the early church that are hard, that are messy, that are people disagreeing and having a hard time and trying to figure out life together. What does it mean to do community? What does it mean to have church? What does it mean to do ministry? And that's what Luke, the author of Acts, gives us. These messy, sometimes ugly stories of things that happened, of, of people working through these things. And this morning, we have a particularly hard story. It's, to me, it is such a heartbreaking story of this dynamic duo, this amazing ministry team who come to a point where they can't agree and they end up separating. And it's heartbreaking to me. I hate the story. I hate what happened. But Luke gives us the honest, gritty truth about human nature, about ministry, about community, about this church working through. How do we best use people's spiritual gifts? How do we best minister to Jews and Gentiles, to all these different sorts of people who have never worshipped the same God together in this way? How do we do this? And that's the story we have today in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36, if you'll turn there with me. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. And it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul and Barnabas have already been on one missionary journey. And they've traveled different areas. And they've planted some different churches. And, and then they had a break. They went to Jerusalem for a little bit. They went back to Antioch, which was their sending church, their home base. And now Paul is saying it's time to go back and visit these different churches. They need some encouragement. They need some additional training. They just, it's time to go out. And Barnabas says, okay. Um, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And, they arose, and there arose a sharp disagreement. Now this sharp disagreement has this connotation of, of anger, of emotion. In a couple chapters later in Acts 17, Luke is going to use the same word to describe the the anger that Paul was provoked to when he sees all these idols in a city to, a, to false gods. And it provokes him to such anger. There's a lot of emotion in this. This is not just like, okay, let's sit down and have a discussion and figure out what are we going to do here? How are we going to best going to handle the situation? It's an emotional term here. It's a hard thing that they're going through, that they're trying to figure out. And it was so sharp 
that they separated from each other. Now, Paul and Barnabas, this is like the breaking up of the Beatles, guys. <laughs> Barnabas, <laughs> let's, let's remember, Barnabas is the one who, remember several weeks ago when Paul first came to Christ and everybody was like, um, I don't think so. Barnabas is the one who said, yes, let's take him in. I believe him, guys. I believe that this is what God is doing. And he's the one who brought Paul into the church. And then after Paul, for his own protection and his training, was sent to Tarsus to, um, I already said it, for training and protection, Barnabas is the one who, after several years, led by the Holy Spirit, went and retrieved Paul and brought him to the ministry at Antioch, to this church, to be involved in the ministry. And then for one year, they together served and ministered in Antioch. And then after that, Antioch sent together Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And they go around to all the churches, and they come back, and I've told you a little bit about that story. So they have been working together since pretty much the beginning of Paul's conversion. They have seen the Holy Spirit move in incredible, amazing ways in that first missionary journey. They have been persecuted together. They have been stoned together with actual stones, not anything else. <laughs> they have gone through a lot. What on earth could bring this this ministry duo to a point where they can't continue together, where they can't come to agreement. Well, it says that Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul doesn't. Now, at first, when I read this, I kind of got mad at Paul a little bit. Because, you know, hello, somebody has to believe in John Mark. Sure, he left before, but... Paul should know, of all people, that people deserve second chances. And Barnabas, he's known for being the encourager, the merciful, the one who brings people in. I mean, how can you get mad at Barnabas for doing something like that? Paul, come on. Really? You can't give the guy a second chance? You can't forgive him? I mean, Paul writes the two things that he writes the most about in his letters, number one, the gospel of grace. Grace, people. Number two, unity. The unity of the believers. So what on earth happened that Paul thinks it's best to not take John Mark if he believes so highly in grace and he believes so highly in unity, in reconciliation when people have messed up and bringing them back in? What happened that caused Paul to say, no, I don't think so? Well, Luke doesn't exactly tell us what happened, but we can infer some things from the way that Luke writes about it, from how he puts it in the story, from some of the language he uses. Some people think that John Mark left because of persecution. I don't think that's true. And let me tell you why I don't think that's true. First of all, let's talk about who John Mark was for a little bit. John Mark was 
he's been part of the church for a while. He's been experiencing some persecution. So in the end of Mark's gospel, there's this odd detail included at the arrest of Jesus about a young man who flees from the scene naked. And a lot of scholars, most scholars believe that that man is John Mark. So, which says, now remember, everybody was fleeing at the time. The disciples were fleeing, so let's not get too hard on him for fleeing right there. But that says that John Mark was, he wasn't one of the 12, but he was following Jesus. And he was actually there the night that Jesus was arrested. The next time we see John Mark, we actually saw him last week in Jesus. Oh my goodness, Toby, am I, what's going on? In Jason's sermon, not Jesus' sermon, I think, I think Toby like pulled some kind of curse on me or something. In Jason's sermon, John Mark was the one who was hosting the prayer meeting for Peter. So here is somebody who is clearly involved somehow in leadership in the church, who is willing to risk things, risk his home, his family, his life, to host this prayer meeting for Peter. Then we see John Mark um, a couple of verses later in, tw in chapter 12, verse 25, when Paul and Barnabas, they had traveled from Antioch to Jerusalem to take some funds because the Jerusalem church was really suffering from some famine and persecution and everything. So they had taken some funds there to Jerusalem. They're returning from Jerusalem to back to Antioch, their kind of home base, and they take John Mark with them. So Paul and Barnabas take John Mark. He's going from Jerusalem. He's going to embark on a new ministry. He goes to Antioch. And in Antioch then, the Holy Spirit, the church, calls Paul and Barnabas to their first missionary journey, and John Mark goes with them. After he had been, just for a little bit, they've only been to a couple churches at this point. There hasn't really been any persecution going on. John Mark leaves. And the word used there is this abandonment. Not just like physically fleeing, I'm scared, but like I am, I disagree. I am separating myself from you, distance and in opinion. I do not want to be a part of what you guys are doing. He is leaving the work intentionally. And here's why I don't think it's about persecution. So he's been in Jerusalem. He leaves the missionary journeys, which haven't really seen a lot of persecution yet, although that will quickly ramp up. But he leaves that to go back to Jerusalem, where there is a lot of persecution. So I'm pretty sure he's not scared of being persecuted, and that's why he's leaving. The other odd detail that Luke includes is that he leaves from the missionary journey, not back to Antioch, which is the sending church, which was the whole thing. So it's not like he was, I got to go back to Antioch, report on some things that are going on. I got to go back to the home-based church. He goes back to Jerusalem, back to his home, not to the sending church. And here's the other thing going on here. So I need you to kind of hang with me with a little bit of church council theological stuff that's going on. 
So for 4,000 years, this is how things were done. If you as a Gentile wanted to become a God worshiper, if you wanted to be part of his chosen people, if you wanted to be part of his kingdom, great, the Jews said, you become Jewish. You become circumcised. And that's how things were done for 4,000 years. Now, Paul is going off. He's called to a ministry to the Gentiles. And this is the, we have not seen mass conversion of the Gentiles like this before. We have not seen this many Gentiles decide to worship the Jewish God before. This is the first time. It's a huge thing. It's a huge difference. And Paul is not circumcising them. 4,000 years they've been circumcised, and Paul is not doing this. And I think this is hard for us to really grasp because we are so far removed from this whole idea of the Jewish God. Because at the time, remember, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. It was about God coming to his chosen people, redeeming them, and anybody who wanted to join and become Jewish so that they could be redeemed along with that, that was great. Come in, join us. But it was about you becoming Jewish, and God would redeem you through that. But Paul is not circumcising them, which is saying, he's saying you don't have to be Jewish. That God is going to redeem you apart from being Jewish. As I'm trying to grasp what that meant for people, what, how they were trying to handle that, here's the only comparison I could come up with. This is as if somebody, if Jason were standing up here and he said, we are no longer going to have to worship God at a Christian church. You can go anywhere you want and worship God. You can go to a Buddhist church. You can go to a Muslim. You can go to a Jewish synagogue. You can go to a Hindu temple. You can go wherever you want and worship God. Now, I'm not saying Jason would ever say that. I'm not saying I believe that that is true. I'm just saying that if I were sitting out there and Jason said that, I'd be going, um, Jason told me the other day that I give him, no, not the other day, this morning, that I give him funny looks during his sermon. He would definitely be getting a funny look from me then. I don't think that's true, Jason. But that's how the people felt. How, what are you saying that they don't have to be Jewish first? We're, Jews are God's chosen people. This was such a big issue that the first church council met over this. Not over anything about, like, is Christ divine or his humanity or any of these big things that we think of. Not something that is defined in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Those would come later. The very first church council was about, do Gentiles have to be Jews first? Do they have to be circumcised? And they debate this and they pray about this and they talk about it and they come to the answer of no. They don't. But before this, John Mark leaves. He leaves, Luke says, the work. And Luke defines the work as Paul's calling to the Gentiles. John Mark is purposefully leaving Paul and Barnabas and the work they were doing with the Gentiles. And I think it was because he did not agree with the way ministry was going down. And he felt really strongly about it. And he goes back to Jerusalem. And he brings, I, 
I would make a case that he brings this issue up because it's in Jerusalem not too much later that they have this first council. Okay, let's decide. What are we going to do with all these Gentiles? How are we going to worship this one God together? How are we going to bring people into God's kingdom? How are we going to bring people together in unity? And I think John Mark disagreed with it. So then we come here. We come to Paul and Barnabas, back to our story. What do we do with John Mark? Because Barnabas is arguing, Paul, he deserves a second chance. You should know that. You should get that. And Paul is saying, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve a second chance. But maybe this is not the best time and place for it. The church is here. We're going out to encourage. We're going out to affirm that they don't need to be circumcised. We're going out to affirm what we've been teaching them. And John Mark, if he's not sure of where he stands on this issue, and the church is there, see him as a leader, this could cause a lot of problems, Barney. Paul called him Barney back then. But this would be the best opportunity to teach him, to show him that this is what God wants. B, I can't risk it. There's just too much on the line. We can train him at another time. We can, he can come to Antioch and train here for a little bit, but we just can't take him on this journey. He's my cousin, dude. Dude. And they leave. They separate. And this is heartbreaking to me. This is such a sad story. Ministry is really, really hard. I don't think for an instance that this was about Paul and Barnabas. Now I'm calling them Barney. Paul and Barnabas just hurt feelings or pride or I want my own way. I think that this was Barnabas said, this is the best way to do ministry. And Paul thinks, this is the best way to do ministry. They are both at a place where they want to minister. They, th these people have been used by God. They have a track record that's amazing. And they couldn't come to agreement. There are going to be times when our leadership is going to make decisions and you are going to say, I don't like that. Or maybe even, I don't think that was the right decision. This leadership has to make, I mean, I, you and I, we're not on the staff meetings. We don't see a lot of things that's going on. But they have to make a ton of decisions. Some just logistical, what entrance do we go into? But notice, Trey explained why that was important because it was about ministry. Even something as simple as, as what entrance do we walk into is about ministry. How do we best grow this community? Notice I said grow spiritually. Not make them happy, not make them comfortable. It's not a country club. How do we best spiritually grow this, con this congregation? 
And so I want to ask you guys, for us, how do we best support our leadership? These people who God has tasked with shepherding us. These people who give so much time and have sacrificed so much for us. How can we best support them? And I want to suggest three ways. First one, just simply show them grace. Just take into consideration the myriad of decisions they have to make from big to little. The, the, all the different backgrounds that they have to take into consideration. All of the people that they are trying to serve. And show them grace. Honestly, I have not always been good about this in past churches. There have been churches that I've been a part of, and they've made decisions that either I didn't like, maybe even hurt me personally. And I let that get in the way of my own participation and spiritual growth. Because in the end, that's what happens when we put up those walls. It was my growth in spiritual participation that was hindered. The churches are still going strong, thank goodness. Thank goodness my little pettiness didn't get in that way. But so the first thing I want to say is show them grace for their sake and for yours. The second thing I want to say, and as soon as I remember it, I'll share it with you. <laughs> because I remember my first point, and I remember my third point, and the second point is totally left the building. So we'll move on to my third point. My third point is pray for them. Last week, Jason talked about the power of prayer. And this is true not only for our individual lives, but for this community, the community of redemption. We need to earnestly, daily, be praying for the community, and we need to be praying for each other. And I want to do something now, which might make some people uncomfortable. I want to have all the clergy and their spouses, so clergy and staff and their spouses, just stand up so we can, I want us to take just a moment right now to pray for them, because this is important that we pray for them. So clergy and spouses, so we have uh, Sandra, Clark, Andy, Sheila, Aaron, thank you, Trey, and David and Nancy, and Laurie and Tom. Okay, um, now the rest of the congregation, if you guys will also stand, and if you feel comfortable with it, just lay your hands on them. If not, just stand and just for a moment, I want to pray for them because the task that they have is huge. Father, I thank you so much for these leaders, these amazing people who have sacrificed so much, who continue to sacrifice so much, who have done so much to that demonstrates their love for you and their love for us. I pray that you will minister to them, that you will fill them up, 
that you will give them your peace and joy and love. I pray that you will give them wisdom in all of the many decisions that they make all the time. I pray that you will um, help us to show them grace and love and to support them in the way that they need to be supported. Pray these things in your son's name, amen. Hey, and guess what? While we were praying, I remembered my second point. (laughs) See, prayer works. My second point, really quickly, is to thank them. So as a mom, some days I feel like my entire day is dictated by food. (laughs) The kids get up, okay, what does everybody want for breakfast? And you make breakfast, and you set it down, and they eat about two bites, and then they're off playing, and they don't want to eat anymore. And so you clean it all up, and as soon as you're done cleaning it all up, they come in, I'm hungry, what's for snack? So then you got to figure out snack. And you cut up all the apples, and you get out all the seeds and the core, and you make sure there are no black spots, because heaven forbid there's a black spot. And you give them all their little apples, and they eat their apples, half of which end up somewhere hidden in the house, and I'm still finding withered apples from who knows when. And then they finish all that up, and you get that all cleaned up, and it's time to think about lunch. And now you get them lunch, and you put the lunch on the plates, and then you give it to them, and oh my goodness, there's whining and complaining because I've put it on the wrong plates. Keegan wants the red plate. Annie wants the green plate. Grace wants no plate at all. She just wants it on the table. And then you get them all to eat this stuff, and they, they finally eat, and you clean it all up, and floor, table, ceiling, wherever the food is, and you get that all cleaned up, and you think, oh, I have to think about dinner. What am I going to make for dinner? I have to defrost something, so I get something out of the freezer, and you figure out what you're going to make for dinner, and then maybe you have a couple-minute break, and then it's snack time again. What do you want for snack? And they want this and that, and so you're getting them trail mix, and you have to make this trail mix, but you have to make it this way for Annie, and this way for Keegan, and this way for Grace, because they all like it different ways, and they all like it in different bowls. Nope, not that bowl, Mom. I want this bowl. Okay, now I've got the snack ready. Okay, now I've got to get dinner. So I have this, which is not quite defrosted, but it's okay, and then I have to get the vegetables and all this, and you put it on their plate, and no, Mom, how could you give me Brussels sprouts? Because yesterday you loved them. And every once in a while, just every great once in a while, I put their plates down and they go, I mean, on their own. Thank you for making dinner, Mama. (laughs) And scene. (laughs) Thank our leaders. We forget to do this all the time. We forget to thank them. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you guys do. Um, Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book called Life Together about living life together as a community, as a body of believers. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. But he says this about the community. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. And let me just say, I don't think that applies here. He's saying thank you. Thank God for the fellowship, even when you feel like you're not growing, the sermons aren't very good, the music kind of stings. We don't have that, right? We have an amazing service. We have a lot to thank God for. 
If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. When we don't thank God for what he's given us and when we don't thank each other, that hinders our fellowship. But when you have a mindset of saying, God, thank you. Thank you for making me a part of this group. Thank you for the leadership and thanking the leadership themselves. Can we be the people that make them go, ah. That will grow our fellowship. That is going to give them some energy to go on. And that will give us the mindset of letting us know what kind of amazing place this is. Show them grace. Thank them and pray for them. Now, this is a broken story. It's a sad story. But our God is a God of redemption. Three years ago, there was a bombing at the end of the Boston Marathon. And one particular girl, there are a ton of stories about this, but there's one particular girl named Kelly something. My memory. Kelly something. Who was at the end of the race, and she caught shrapnel in her legs. She was part of this horrible tragedy that happened. Three years later, she's running the race with her boyfriend of two years. And he decides he wants to redeem Boylston Street for her. And he decides he's going to propose to her as they come, as they cross the finish line. Now, it didn't exactly go according to his plan. He had this big plan. At, at the end, a half mile before they came, he was going to start, you know, reminiscing about all these wonderful things about their relationship and all this stuff. But he's never run a marathon before, and he drank too much, and he knows if he opens his mouth, he's going to spew everywhere. <laughs> and she, who has run a marathon before, sees the finish line and starts sprinting, and he can barely even catch up with her. But they get to the end, and he shakily goes down on one knee, and he says, will you marry me? And then he projectile vomits. <laughs> he said, I'm so proud that I didn't vomit on her shoes. <laughs> and she said yes. And that place was redeemed for her. That place was no longer a place of ugly, scary, horrible memories, but a place of a new beginning, a place of a new life. And God does that. In Acts, he took these two amazing leaders and they went different directions. Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus, and Paul took a man named Silas a man who had been part of the church leadership in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And he takes him and goes north. And because of that, there were two missionary journeys instead of one. Because of that, there were two leaders trained, John Mark and Silas, instead of just one. Silas became, he was with Paul, quite a bit from then on out. He was a scribe for Paul, and he was a scribe for Peter. He was an important part of the church leadership. John Mark, whom you better know as Mark, 
went on to write the very first gospel. The reason scholars think that that odd detail about a young man fleeing naked from the scene is because Mark wrote that story. He wrote that gospel. He became a scribe for Peter and traveled quite a bit for Peter. He also became a ministry partner with Paul. He traveled with him. Paul later wrote that he was a great comfort to him and helpful to him. He asked a church to send John Mark to him. There was reconciliation there. There was redemption. And so even though we have this heartbreaking story, we have a beautiful phoenix rising from the ashes redemption because that's who our God is. That's what we can be about. We support our leaders. We love them. We show them grace. And we also know that when we have times when we disagree with each other and with our leadership, we have a God of redemption, a God of reconciliation. And we can work it out because that's who our God is. And he wants us to work it out. And that's the beauty and I love that that's our name. So, ministry is going to get hard. I'm not going to lie. It's not going to be all wonderful. But we have an amazing God. <laughs>